Let's pray. Father, we ask that in the time that we have together now, that you would cause us to understand very clearly the salvation that is available to us and what that means for our lives now here in this place, but also what it means for our world and where we're headed and how we should invest the days that we have. So we pray you will help us to see these things and to be changed by them. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and uh, take the Bible that you should have. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we can help you to get one. We might have some that we could still give away. Does anybody not have one? Okay. Do we have more? Who was passing them out earlier? There's not anymore. There's not anymore? So maybe just look on with somebody close to you. I guess we've, we've given out all that we have. But we're going, to be, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah chapter 9, page 487. So if you have a Bible that, if you're using one of the Bibles from our room here, you can find Isaiah 9 on page 487. And that will help you to kind of find your way with where we're going to spend our time for a little bit before we break into some small groups. Now, if you, if you spend enough time with anyone, you can begin to predict their tendencies. You get to know enough about them so that you can understand what they like and what they don't like and what they're most likely to talk about. So, when I spend time with Ryan Merritt, probably, we do have a lot of fun, probably Ryan and I are going to talk about football. We probably won't eat barbecue, which is unfortunate. But we find other foods that, that we both like. But Ryan and I talk a lot about football. If I'm going to have a conversation with Jonathan Bergen, I'm probably going to hear about the latest podcast he's listening to. Is it yours? I don't know. Are you, have you listened to ours? Not yet. Oh. Wow. Thanks, Camden. That hurt. If I'm talking to Aaron... just learned about it. I know. It's, it's available. If I'm talking to Aaron Arnold, we're probably going to talk about books. Um, if I talk to Katie, we're probably going to talk about soccer. Maybe. If I talk to Sam or Melinda, or Audrey for that matter, probably going to find out about Chick-fil-A. If I talk to Maddie, I'm probably going to hear about band. Somebody beat me too, that one. If I'm talking to Grant, we're probably going to talk about Europe. If I talk to Will... Where'd Will go? Are you here, Will? Oh, there you are. Will, you, what do we talk about? Normally I hear about video games from Will. That's not <laughs> And I could go on. Uh, and, no doubt, those of you that have had conversations with me, you've picked up on tendencies of mine, things that I like to talk about. might hear about the Cubs. You might hear about uh, UT football. Uh, and, and you can do this with, you know, with any of your friends, obviously. Now, for those who knew Isaiah, 
And for those of us who read from Isaiah, we know, and the people who knew him best, probably would have said about Isaiah, man, that guy talks a lot about salvation. And it even starts with his name. And we mentioned this, I think, when we started this study, that Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And that is the message that permeates this entire book of the Bible that he has written, which is why we're calling our study of Isaiah mighty to save, because that is an attribute of God that he emphasizes throughout his entire book. And we need to be reminded of the topic of salvation often, and it ought to become, that topic ought to become something that people know us for as well. So that when they have conversations with us, they should expect to hear about God and the salvation that He provides. That doesn't make it wrong to talk about music or books or sports or podcasts or video games or any of those other things. But it does mean that as we're having conversations, we can weave in the Lord and His gospel and speak of it for the good of others. And so Isaiah, again, in this section, emphasizes the Lord's salvation, and he even shows how that salvation points forward to the way the world will end. And so if we care about the way the world will end, then that's going to um, help us to know what's really important as we wait for the end of the world, so that we're not just wasting our days. So we're going to start in Isaiah 9, and, and let's actually pick up where we left off last week. We left off last week uh, in verse 7. So look at Isaiah 9 and verses 6 and 7. I want to read these to kind of make sure we're understanding the context where we are in Isaiah. Isaiah writes this, chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Isaiah predicts that a child's going to be born and he's going to reign and, and, and his authority will only increase until it encompasses the whole earth. And how long is he going to reign? Forever. Forever and ever. We could sing the Hallelujah Chorus, right, Miss Stephanie? Maybe we should. Maybe not now. Sing along with it. I know, the music just plays while you're reading it, right? And we know that this prophecy, this prediction of a child to be born was fulfilled in what person? Who, who is Isaiah speaking of here, ultimately? Of Jesus, who was born as a baby and who, who one day will ascend to the throne of David. So that's where we left off last week. And, and those verses give an idea of what kind of God Isaiah serves. But now he's going to make a contrast. Because do God's people always live up to God's character? No, there's, there are differences, right? And so God's character... Is, is up here. God's people aren't always up to his character. So we're going to, Isaiah brings up this contrast because he wants his readers to know the good news of salvation, but he's going to set it up first by talking about the bad news. And the bad news is true of all people everywhere, even of us. And there's many similarities between us and the people that Isaiah mentions in these 
passages. So you've got a bulletin, I think, and you've got pens, and so I'm going to go through these points here. I'd encourage you to fill in the blanks as we go, and that'll be kind of the basis for the discussions you'll have in small groups here in a few minutes. Isaiah emphasizes five things about about salvation. First of all, Isaiah brings up the need for salvation. All people need salvation. There is a universal need for salvation. And it is, it is brought up um, as Isaiah, like I said, contrasts the character of God with the character of his people. So what group of people is, is Isaiah talking about? Look at chapter 9 and verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against who? What group of people? Against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. So Israel is the nation that God had chosen for himself. Jacob is, is um, a synonym of that. So if you, if you know your history in Genesis, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and, and thus the entire nation was named, named Israel and sometimes also referred to as Jacob. Now notice there's, there's some repetition here, and it kind of helps us understand the, the structure. So look at the very end of verse 12. So still Isaiah 9 and verse 12. And, and you have this phrase, For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Does everybody see that? Okay. Now go to the very end of verse 17, and you see the exact same words. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The end of verse 21, it's there again, isn't it? And then it's there a fourth time in chapter 10 and verse 4. At the end of verse 4, For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So it seems like Isaiah is, is giving four reasons why God is speaking against his people and why his people need his salvation. And here are the four reasons that seem to come out of, out of this section. So God's people need salvation for these four reasons. First, they are prideful and arrogant. They are prideful and arrogant. So go back to chapter 9 and verse 8. The Lord has sent this word against Jacob, and it falls on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. They speak in pride and in arrogance of heart. And verse 10 says, They say, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Now, let's try to make sense of, of what it is that they're, of they're saying here. Um, if, if their buildings have fallen, which is apparently what, I, what these people are saying, who probably knocked their buildings down? God did, I think, yeah, because he's, he's showing his, his power and his punishment against them for their sins. Now, if God knocked their buildings down, but they're saying, hey, we can build again and we can make it even better than we did before. If God knocked their buildings down, do you think they're going to have a lot of success building it bigger and better and stronger the next time? No. I would say not. And for them to think so would be evidence of their pride, wouldn't it? And same thing, you know, they're sycamores. So if God has cut down all their trees... Are they going to plant better trees in their place? 
Probably not, but the fact that they even think that they can is evidence that they are prideful and arrogant and that they can succeed more than God can. They claim that what the Lord has broken down, they can rebuild on their own. And it's worth examining ourselves because we tend also to exalt ourselves and to think that we can accomplish more than God can. So I encourage you to think about how and where that might be true in your own life. Where are you prideful and arrogant? That's the first reason. Here's the second reason. They need salvation because they do not seek the Lord. They do not seek the Lord. So verse 13. The people did not turn to Him who struck them. Again, there's evidence that it was the Lord who struck them. But they didn't turn to Him, nor did they inquire of the Lord of hosts. Meaning they they didn't go to Him with their questions or their concerns. Now, the Lord displays His punishment, but He doesn't do it so that His people will run from Him, but He actually does it so that His people will return to Him. Because ultimately, they need to be saved from Him and for Him. So they need to be saved from His punishment so that they can enjoy His salvation. So, so perhaps, in times past, your parents have needed to correct you for things. When our parents correct us, is it do they do it so that we will run away from them and stay away from them? No. I don't think so. What's their motive? Tell you next time. Yeah, to give you wisdom for how to choose make better choices next time? Yeah. They're trying to mend that relationship. So so if I if I went against my parents Uh, I could expect that my dad and mom would correct me. But they didn't do it so that I, because they wanted me to be distant from them. They did it because I had broken a relationship with them and they were mending it by showing me, you've done wrong. And so we're going to correct you, sometimes harshly, but we're going to correct you so that you understand this is what is right. You understand the difference between right and wrong so that we can have a right relationship with each other. But they didn't seek the Lord. God punished them, and instead of turning to Him, they turned even further away from Him. Here's the third reason they need salvation. They are wicked. They are wicked. So you see this in verse 18, where Isaiah says, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest And they roll upward in a column of smoke. Well, this is pretty straightforward. They are wicked. Now, if if people are wicked, what does it assume about God? If they are wicked, God must be what? He's he's angry for their wickedness. But what, what what is true about God's character? Would God also be wicked then? No, God wouldn't correct them for being the same as He is. Instead, they are wicked, but He is... He's righteous. Yeah, He's not wicked. He is holy. So God is that standard of righteousness that He's holding all people to, and yet these people are wicked, and so they need His salvation. And here's the fourth reason. They ignore the poor and the widows, and the fatherless. 
they ignore the poor and the widows and the fatherless. So, so go to chapter 10 and verse 1. And Isaiah says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people in their, of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. So instead of, of helping those in need, they actually were turning against those in need. And each of these is an offense to God Himself. So, so God is doing something about all of, these, all of these things. So just to emphasize this again, if you look at chapter 9, verse 11, it's the Lord who raises up adversaries. And in verse 14, it's the Lord who cuts off from Israel head and tail. And in verse 17, it's the Lord who does not rejoice over their young men. And in verse 19, it is through the wrath of the Lord of hosts that the land is scorched. And even in chapter 10, verse 2, when he's talking about the poor, what does he call them? The poor of... You see it there? They rob the poor of my people. They're his people. He calls the poor his people. So God's trying to get Israel's attention about how they are guilty in these areas of life, and God might be trying to get our attention about our guilt as well. And so if He is, it would be much better for us to turn to the Lord and to go back to Him than to continue to turn from Him and run back to our sin. So we should decide to turn to the Lord. If we don't turn from sin to God, then we aren't treated as His children, we're treated as His enemies, right? So number one is the need for salvation. Here's number two, the alternative to salvation. That is to say, uh, if salvation is one option, what's the other option? And this is displayed through the Lord's words against His Enemies. So in the previous section, God was talking to what nation? Israel. In the next section, look at chapter 10 and verse 5. Who is he talking to? Assyria. So this is an enemy nation of Israel. And God is going to use them as an example to illustrate his permanent punishment toward those who don't turn to him. And you see the two points there in your notes. That men attempt to overthrow the glory of God. So let's, let's read an example of this. Look at chapter 10 and verse 5, where, the, where Isaiah says, uh, the Lord says through Isaiah, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, and against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets." But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? So, what's being said there? God had brought Assyria to oppose Israel. God had brought Israel's own enemies against them as punishment. But now God is bringing other nations to oppose Assyria. 
And yet, from what you read in these verses, Assyria thinks it can handle these other nations. They're, again, they're, they're illustrating their arrogance. Like, all our commanders are like kings, and we're going to cut off many nations. And that's what Assyria thinks, but the Lord promises otherwise. So look at verse, look at verse 10. The Lord says, As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So Israel was going to be punished. Assyria Assyria was going to be punishment. Assyria thought they could oppose God and get away with it. But if, if... Man's glory goes up against the Lord's glory. Which one is going to prevail? God's glory every time, right? So look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. And here's how He's going to do it. Look down at verse 15. The Lord says this about Assyria. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, who cuts with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day and the glory of his forest and his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. Assyria thought it was pretty special and the Lord says it's as though you are a sick man who is dying. Man's glory is burned up and destroyed, and God alone is glorified. And He's glorified even as He punishes sin. Now, it would be dangerous for us to think that that only applies to Assyria. Because the reality is that for all of us who continue in our sin, God is right to punish us for our sins. And yet, the Lord promises that there's a way to be delivered from our sins. So that's where number three is very important for us. So number three, write down the pattern of salvation. The pattern of salvation. Meaning, we can know how to expect God to act in the future based on how He has acted in the past. A couple statements to help us understand this. Here's the first one. God will bring a remnant of His people... Out of captivity, a remnant, R-E-M-N-A-N-T. A remnant of his people out of captivity. We mentioned this last week uh, because of the name of Isaiah's son. One of his son's names um, illustrates this, this promise. So now read what he says here. Go down to verse 20. This is chapter 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, 
only a remnant of them will return. And destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So in some ways, this is a statement both of punishment and of mercy. So Assyria was going to take Israel captive. That would be punishment, right? But would Assyria wipe out Israel? No, not completely. God would save some, wouldn't he? He would keep some alive. And that is mercy. So it's judgment that not all of them survive, but God is merciful in that not all of them are destroyed. He's going to save a remnant. And then here's the second point about the pattern of salvation. God will deliver them from Assyria like he did from Egypt. So when Israel would be taken captive, they would be slaves in Assyria, just like they had been slaves where? In Egypt. And now God is promising that he's going to rescue them in similar ways as well. So, for example, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. So he's promising a new exodus. God personally saved Israel from Egypt. And he's going to personally save Israel from Assyria. And he's going to personally save all his people from their sins. And he would do it through a person. So that's the pattern. Number four is, talks about the source of salvation. The source of salvation. Where does this salvation come from? It comes from the root of Jesse. So chapter 11 and verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember we talked about the branch that comes up out of the tree that's cut down a couple of weeks ago from Isaiah 4? Okay, this is the same promise repeated. Now, who is Jesse? Why would it matter that a shoot is going to come from the stump of Jesse? Who is Jesse? He's the father of King David. And the promise uh, that we read, in fact, um, when Lauren was reading John 7, even the, the people in the first century are like, um, you know, talking about Jesus, is this the Christ? Well, we know the Christ is going to come from the line of David. And Isaiah here is saying, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So even though Israel's enemies would cut them down like a tree, a branch would arise from that chopped down tree, and that branch would bear fruit. And two things would happen that are described here in chapter 11. Number one, he will overcome the curse. He will overcome the curse. He sets all things right. And so you read about things like in verse 6, 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and lion and fattened calf together, and the little child shall lean on them, and the cow and bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand into the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Have we ever lived in a world like that? No. Because we live in a fallen and cursed world where nature is opposed to one another. Not just in the animal kingdom, but in the human race as well. And this is a preview of the peace that is coming when the curse is overthrown. And so we ought not put our hopes in things that will not last. Because this world is passing away. A better world is coming, so put your hope in that world. So he overcomes the curse, and then next he rescues his people. He rescues his people. Look at verse 11. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. He'll do it from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shamar and Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. And, and all the way down in verse 16, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So again, notice, notice the comparison. God has saved this way in the past. He's going to save in an even greater way in the future. And all of what we've said so far is fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus is the one who has shown us that there is a distinction between our character and God's character. God is holy and righteous and we are wicked. And so we need for God to come to us and rescue us and make us right with Him and bring us to Himself. And He did that by sending His Son, the Lord Jesus, who overcame the curse by allowing Himself to die as one who was cursed and yet coming back from the dead. So that all of us also can one day overcome the curse and be raised from the dead if we'll simply believe and trust in Him. That's the gospel. That's what Christianity is all about. And Jesus is the source of that salvation. And then lastly, number five, Isaiah emphasizes the extent of salvation. The extent of salvation. And he says that salvation is to the ends of the earth. So read with me from chapter 12 and verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 3. With you, sorry, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, among all the peoples of the earth. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known where? In all the earth. So the good news of this salvation extends to all peoples, all nations. And this is our task. And this is why we as a church and we, the, we as a youth ministry, we emphasize missions the way that we do. And we talk about using our time 
and our gifts and our resources and everything to make God known in parts of the world where He is not yet known. So Isaiah strives to make this message of salvation very clear. It is his primary message. So let's pray for faithfulness that we'll use our lives and our words to also point others to the Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that as we contemplate all that we've seen from this section of Scripture tonight, that we again will be reminded that we are not worthy of your mercy, of your salvation. We see our desperate need for you because we do not live up to your holy character. And so we praise you that Jesus has come to show us the way to life and righteousness that He has modeled that for us, that He has substituted Himself in our place so that we don't have to be punished for our sins because He was punished for us. And we don't have to be perfect because He was perfect for us. But we do need to trust in Him. So I pray You'll help us to do that. I pray that we will be all the more committed to giving our lives to Christ and to living in a way that pleases Him and, and in a way that makes... Uh, others to know of him. Uh, So help us to speak these things and to live these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.